The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 7 and 8. In his relationship with Leora, certain things for Martin become settled forever. He is absorbed in her. She stirs him. And he talks more honestly to her than he does to his own worried self. When Di Gamma Pi holds a dance, Martin decides that with Leora at his side he must look the proper part. And with all the awkwardness of one unaccustomed to elegance, he goes to buy a suit. Seeing his clumsy attempt at formal dress, Leora, with her usual sweetly guileless devotion, tells him he is just too grand for her, and that she won't have a chance with him. And he kisses her. When he arrives in his black waistcoat to find the more savvy dressers, like Angus Dewar, in white, he is too miserable even to enjoy Leora's company. He also achingly desires the men to crowd in, admire Leora, and ask her to dance, but he is too proud to introduce her about. He and Leora stand in a corner, disconsolate, as the confident men go by, laughing with girls. Finally, desperate, he pounces on Fatty Faff. Martin's desires are realized, as Fatty then introduces Leora to another digam, and a long string of invitations ensues. Then Martin becomes agitated, and Leora notices his glowering. Pulling him aside, she gives him a charming scolding, saying that she doesn't care a bit for anyone but him, and that if he ever gets jealous again, he better just sneak off and get rid of it. After a momentary impulse to deny it all, he admits to everything, and he is her slave. After the dance, Cliff Clausen is waiting outside to meet Leora for the first time, and to pronounce judgment. Martin had, of course, spoken highly of her, just as he had spoken highly of Madeline, so Cliff was prepared to dislike her. When Cliff acts like a roughneck, taking pride in being offensive, and Leora responds with her immense power of accepting people as they were, Cliff grows to like her as quickly as Martin did. He declares her real folks. With Cliff's approbation, Martin is warmed to benevolence for all mankind, even Angus Dewar. Seeing Dewar at the end of the room, he approaches him, extends his hand, and offers his congratulations on Dewar's election to Sigma Xi. Dewar's response is worse than rude. He is patient. And Martin declares to Cliff and Leora that he should be shot. That night, Martin lies in bed indignant over Dewar's insult and racked with self-doubt about whether Dewar has something that he lacks. Perhaps, he thinks, there is a technique of manners as important as a technique of experiment. His mind whirls, and he can't sleep. The next day, Angus apologizes and suggests an outing to the theater with Leora and one of her friends. Martin agrees, first grateful, then suspicious, then regretful, then declaring, oh, I don't know. They go to the theater, and afterward, Martin wants to take them all to dinner. Leora's friend says that they are supposed to be back to the hospital by eleven, and shaking her head at the wickedness of breaking curfew, she flees for the trolley. Angus then sets his sights on Leora, who admirably sees straight through him. 
when Angus makes the attention-seeking claim that he gets no attention, and that he is shy of women. Leora roundly declares, When anybody says that, it means they are not shy, and they despise women. When Martin twitches with jealousy at Angus's attentions, Leora calls him an idiot, and says she is magnificently uninterested in this conceited hypnotist. They walk her back to the hospital, where she has to sneak in through the window. Martin, dissatisfied with their parting, hastens after her for a goodbye kiss. She scolds him again for his jealousy, and he calls her his love forever. Back out on the street, he and Angus are confronted by a watchman, and Martin watches Angus go mad. After Angus produces a knife and stares at the watchman with the eyes of a killer, Martin drags him away and takes him to a lunchroom, where Angus drinks himself into oblivion and sobs. This bonding experience, Martin thinks, has made them friends. But the next day, Angus merely snaps at Martin for being stewed, tells him he'd better cut it out if he can't handle his liquor, and walks away. Martin's work goes on, sixteen merciless hours a day, comprised of bacteriological research, medical school cramming, and hospital demonstrations. Martin grows to respect the philosophy of sympathetic healing exemplified by Dean Silva, almost as much as he despises the cheap salesmanship of Roscoe Geek. On his departure to work for a medical supplies company, Geek gives a final address to the students. The theme of it is that while it's all well and good to have ethics and charity, a doctor must also subscribe to practical philosophy, accepting the fact that society judges a man by how much good hard cash he can lay away. Also, popular success and elegantly furnished offices inspire faith in your patients, which makes them easier to cure. Geek makes it seem as if the most vital issues in medicine concern cushions, chairs, and paint. When Leora is called home to Dakota, Martin becomes sick with loneliness, and it shows in his work. Gottlieb becomes impatient, and for once, Martin is impenitent. Soon after that, Cliff is expelled for a prank on Dean Silva, in which he pulls off a medicine show spieler as a world-renowned genius pharmacologist, whose cover is blown when he becomes boisterously and obnoxiously drunk. Cliff moves to Zenith, and Martin is left to mourn in a desolation of loneliness. The second of my posts was called On Focus Summaries. I want to say a few words about what I've come to call our focus summaries. The process of creating them is invaluable to me. Condensing chapters down into paragraphs forces, well, focus, and essentialization. It helps me to make connections, to see progressions, to understand implications. If they weren't so darn time-consuming to create, I'd suggest you write them too. I hope just reading mine offers a helpful substitute for that valuable mental process. Writing these summaries also helps me to more clearly grasp the distinctions in style between authors. To summarize a chapter of Hugo is a vastly different experience than summarizing Sinclair Lewis. Hugo is a plot-driven romantic, and the summary condenses a lot of epic action. 
Lewis is a descriptive and psychologically astute naturalist, which for me makes the summaries more difficult. Little actually happens in any given chapter, and so much of the value has to do with the fine details of the description. So to condense his work and still preserve its meaning is not easy. I want to clarify one of my distinct goals in writing these summaries. I'm trying, and I'll leave it to you to decide whether I'm succeeding, to condense the chapter without killing its soul. In reading or listening to the summary, I want you to experience as much of the spirit of the chapter as possible, despite the absence of the details that give it a full and vibrant life. Many online summaries exist, but in my experience, they're either tediously boring and stripped of spirit, see Cliff's Notes, or, rebelling against tedium, they opt for humor and sarcasm, see my evil twin, Schmoop. All this parallels broader trends in education. The educational establishment teaches a curriculum that is lifeless and dull, detached from any real meaning or value to the student. The reformers typically teach the same essential curriculum, but try to jazz it up with edutainment. Should I be disturbed that autocorrect was perfectly fine with that word? Should I teach these novels in the classroom, I'll be much better prepared to do so for having done this work. If you ever want to really dig deep into a novel and really foster your own understanding, I recommend that you do it too. You can compare my summary of Chapter 7 to those of Cliff's Notes and Schmoop at the links in the Facebook group. The last of my posts was called Favorites. For me, the essential value of Aerosmith lies in two things. One, Martin's gropings over who he wants to be, and the variety of distinctly drawn potential role models for his efforts. And two, the incisive and even poetic observations that illuminate our everyday experiences. Who hasn't been in a social situation in which you feel like you are out of your element, like others know something you don't? In that state of anxious isolation, you can feel scorned and prodded to self-doubt by the sights you see. Lewis makes the point brilliantly. Quote, He grew miserable at the sight of white waistcoats, and when that embryo-famous surgeon Angus Dewar came by, disdainful as a greyhound and pushing white gloves, which are the whitest, most superciliously white objects on earth, then Martin felt himself a hobbledehoy. Unquote. When I was exploring the streets of London with my eldest daughters, we used Yelp to find a place for afternoon tea, and found ourselves at the Lanesboro. Arriving in our sundresses and sneakers, we were greeted by a doorman in a top hat and tails, and wearing white gloves. I can deeply relate to the feeling that in that moment they seemed like the most superciliously white objects on earth. We were decidedly out of our element. Since I told that story, I must insert as an aside that tea at the Lanesboro was positively magical, and the staff warmly welcoming even to us in our inelegant attire. Had that not been true, had we felt snubbed, we might have felt something like Martin when, in a fit of magnanimity, he approached Angus Dewar. 
Lewis is again poetically insightful in his ability to capture what exactly it feels like to be skillfully snubbed. Quote, Dewar regarded the outstretched hand as though it was an instrument which he had seen before, but whose use he could not quite remember. He did not turn his back. He was worse than rude. He looked patient. Unquote. One of my favorite descriptions in this chapter captured both aspects of the essential value I mentioned. I loved Lewis's description of Martin's eager, honest, ambitious, but still immature mind. He's a boy restlessly groping, with none of the secure serenity of a settled philosophy of life. Quote, there was, as yet, no vision in Martin of serene spaciousness of the mind. Beyond doubt, he was a bustling young man, and rather shrill. He had no uplifted moments when he saw himself in relation to the whole world, if he realized there was a deal of the world besides himself. But if he had not ripened, yet he was close to the earth. He did hate pretentiousness, he did use his hands, and he did seek iron actualities with a curiosity inextinguishable." Unquote. Sereneness of maturity as a spaciousness of mind, the restless groping of youth as unripened, bustling, and shrill, a basic honesty as being close to the earth, and the passionate desire for truth as a search for iron actualities with a curiosity inextinguishable. Lewis does have a way with words.